0: Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and
1: Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Songcraft Show.
0: You're listening to Alabama at Night, written and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Robbie Folks. The two-time Grammy nominee and alt-country pioneer will join us later in the show to discuss his career as an eclectic and fiercely independent singer-songwriter. Part one. So, um, Robbie Foulkes is about to come over. Yep. Uh, Hasn't come over yet. Oftentimes we record these things after we've recorded the interview. Right. But this is an an anticipatory moment. Yeah, this is actually happening in real time in terms of the way the episode's going to be listened to. This is real time, folks. Um, So... I uh, got turned on to Robbie folks back in college and uh, he was kind of part of my whole discovery of the alternative country scene. And one of the reasons that I figured out that, oh, I actually like country music. Yeah. Um, I thought I didn't kind of growing up in Nashville, being around it all the time. And then I found out that there was more to country music than I thought there was. And, and guys like Robbie folks were my gateway drug, uh, yeah. to really going down the rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> But, you know, he's one of those guys who uh, he's put out a ton of albums. Mm. He has a really dedicated following. um, And it makes me think of a guy like Tom Russell who's been on the show. And Tom Russell's not a household name. But with all of the um, episodes that we've had, which is well over 100 now, he is one of the most downloaded. Um, Yeah, which is interesting to me because it's like all of his fans are gonna go check that out, whereas with a Smokey Robinson, you know, some of his fans are gonna come check it out. Yeah, I don't think we got all of them. I don't think we got all the Smokey Robinson fans, but it's something to be said for artists that have that like dedicated fan base where they're really connected to their audience, um, even if they're not necessarily household names, um, which is, it's an interesting concept of how that sort of, how that works really.
1: Well yeah, and what's funny is if you're a fan of one of those artists, then you kind of like take pride in the fact that that artist is kind of under the radar, you know? right? It's like, right. This is my guy. I'm in the know. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm the one that goes to like the, the show that nobody knows about, and I've got the record, and I can tell you all about it. Right. And but the flip side of that is when that artist does begin to get popular. Right. Are you kind of bummed then? <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> as a fan, <laughs> that was mine. Yeah, I, I've been telling everybody how great this guy is, and now everybody. Decides they like him, and I'm like, wait a minute, right, right. It, n- now you guys are kind of on my thing, right. Th- there was a band that I was into uh-huh. in I think it was like the early 2000s, a little British band. They put out a record of kind of like songs. They all sounded like they had a cold, and it was kind <laughs> of like you know gray sky type music, and and I loved it. And it was this little band called Coldplay. <laughs> right. I remember telling my friends, man, you got to hear this this British band. Like right. It's kind of an indie thing. Like whatever, Paul. Yeah. And, of course, now it's, like, ridiculous to think that at one point Coldplay was anybody's under-the-radar band. Right, right. But at that moment it was, right. and and now I kind of look at it and I'm like, ah, eh, it's not as much fun for me
0: now. Right. Something was taken from you, yeah, <laughs> right, in a big, big way by the whole world. And this is the the classic uh, conundrum with music geeks like ourselves because uh, we were talking earlier about the band uh, the Bell Brigade, which yeah. um, put out or they put out a couple records, but their first self titled record uh, that came out on Warner Brothers a few years ago was amazing. It yeah. was like Fleetwood Mac in the modern era. And it's a brother-sister group, and that record is probably one of my top records ever. I mean, it's it's just so great. And I would constantly gripe about, why are people not into this band? Right. This music is so good. Why are people not listening to this? So right. it's like, you can't satisfy people like us, because no. if, if the bands we like that are under the radar don't make it, we're like, everyone's an idiot. And then as soon as they do make it, we're like, well, I was into them before anybody else was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's another band
1: called Dead Sarah. It's like a great rock band, incredible lead singer. And, you know, I've been to see them several times. And it, I feel like every time they come back to L.A., they're playing a smaller venue. Right. I'm like, how's this band getting smaller? They should right. be getting bigger. But then again, if all of a sudden I had to fight through a bunch of goofballs to go see them at Staples Center, I'd be mad at that too. So, um, it's We're just malcontents. Uh, I totally. Think. I don't think we're going to be happy with anything. Right, um, But I, I think w- what I get confronted with, if I love an artist right. and I really care about him, shouldn't I want him to do well? Right. Right. Shouldn't I want them? Right. To, yeah, and I want people to hear the music, and I want them these to be you know great experiences that the public right. grabs hold of. Shouldn't I right. want these guys to succeed, or do I want them to just be starving artists? <laughs> right. So know? that you can they can be your little yeah, pet They're Ubering to their own shows <laughs> with their guitar in a soft <laughs> right. shell case, and then going to work at Guitar Center the next day. Is that right. what I want for my favorite artists? No, I want them to do well. <laughs> um, I just I just don't want them to
0: do well at my expense. Right. Well, we want to, we want to know. So we want to be the experts on our favorite artists. Well, yeah, so if that. other people start getting into the mix, well, then one of them might become the expert. Uh, yeah. I actually remember uh, specifically um, a friend of ours uh, wedding where you met another guy who was as enthusiastic about Elvis as you were. <laughs> and I remember the the conversation began as these guys are instant best friends. Yeah. But it, the deeper the the Elvis knowledge comparison went, uh, it wasn't long until you guys hated each other. Yeah, it was a giant
1: game of one-upsmanship. <laughs> right. And, you know, I still don't feel like he really deserves uh, to be a part of the fam, you know, the extended Graceland family. Uh, but he's wormed his way in there somehow. So uh, whatever, whatever, guy. Like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, are, it's it's true. Here's a question we have to ask ourselves: Are we doing the world a giant disservice then by bringing attention to these songwriters and these musicians?
0: Uh, are are we part of the problem? Yeah, we're we're shooting ourselves in the foot essentially. Uh, shut it down. Let's <laughs> shut it all down. You know, I think that our our uh, our forum is not uh, of the degree to which uh, we are single handedly exposing uh, any artists Yet. to the world. But Yet. you know, one day. One day. We're, we're gonna make or break um, careers in this room. You know what's funny about this whole conversation is the other thing that happens, another phenomenon, is I was really into Wilco, uh, mm. when they first came on the scene. And then it became like really cool to like Wilco. And their first few albums, two or three records, like, you know, people liked Wilco, but then it was suddenly it kind of comes in the hipster starter kit, you know, your your Wilco <laughs> vinyl. Um <laughs> and and now I'm at the point where I actually am not very familiar with Wilco's more recent work. Yeah. And you know, I still love the old records and stuff, but now I have like a little anxiety about it cuz like I'm oh. a fan and then I kind of let my fandom lapse cuz I couldn't keep up, you yeah. know. And uh and so now I feel like I have to footnote if somebody's like, oh, "Are you a Wilco fan?" Yeah, kind of like yeah, I mean the early stuff. I into the early stuff.
1: Um, does that hipster starter kit come with an order of avocado toast Or do you have to order that your, yourself That's the, that's the
0: uh, regional California uh, starter kit It just dep- <laughs> all depends on where you are
1: Well um, hopefully uh, we'll be able to talk to Robbie and preserve his mystique right. While we also bring uh, ears and eyeballs to his work at the same time It's a delicate balance but I think we can strike Right it. I
0: think uh, if anyone can do it we can pull it off Let's try
1: Part 2 Hey, so before we get uh, into the episode, I, I want to play you something, uh, a song by a friend of mine. Uh-huh. Here we go. Let me let me, let me me cue it up. All right. Because
2: sometimes I see things I don't think exist, but most days I need them, so I just pretend like I don't know, and I hope that none of Tell me I'm not broken. Tell me
0: you That's very cool.
1: Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. You know who that is?: I don't. That's my friend Justin Morgan. Oh really? He, yeah, you may recognize the name yeah, Justin yeah. from Justin from Pearl Snap Studios. That's cool. Did yeah. he uh, was that him playing all the instruments?: Every inch, every stitch of that recording is him Man. playing, singing, writing, producing. That guy is he's really talented. He's crazy talented. It's a great song. Uh, I listened to it and I was just like, well, back to the drawing board. I gotta figure <laughs> out how to do this all over again. Right. Right.
0: Um, yeah, I feel like that's just like I if I was a music supervisor, I would immediately have to put it that into my movie. Totally. That's that very song evocative. It's
1: called Tell Me I'm Not Broken and it is available at all uh, streaming platforms and I think
0: purchasing as well. Wherever people get their music. Yeah, wh- what however people get music nowadays. <laughs> and if you could tell us where that is. <laughs> Please <laughs> we, write in. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> send a postcard.
1: I, I thought it'd be cool to play that today um, because you know I, I don't know how many of our listeners have heard things that have come out of of Justin's beautiful mind, um, but that's uh, that's just an incredible song. It sounds great, um, and uh, if, so uh, as we spend this time talking about Pearl Snap and what you can actually get done in those hallowed halls, right? Uh, here's a here's an example of it.
0: Yeah, I think what really impresses me about Justin is. Like, I listen to that, and it's got a very particular vibe. Yeah. But then I've heard him do stuff that's just straight-up commercial country. Yeah, totally. You know, I've heard him do stuff that's R&B-oriented. I've heard him do stuff that's, like, you know, rock. I mean, the guy is is, uh, kind of unlimited in what he can do. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, we work with Pearl Snap here uh, on Songcraft is because, you know, we're not going to tout something to our listeners if it's not something that we believe in. Right. And – you know, Justin's the guy that can help take your work tape, your rough demo, work tape, <laughs> your your uh, MP3, whatever you've yeah. got. He can take your rough idea, your guitar vocal, and turn it into a um, pro-level demo. Yeah. And so, you know, we wanted to do something kind of fun on the show because we know that some of our listeners have uh, used Justin's services. Uh, they've worked with Pearl Snap and, and come up with some great demo stuff. So we'd like to invite you guys to send us your recordings that Justin has done for you, and we'd like to play some little snippets of them uh, on the show, so that other people can hear it too. So So. yeah, if
1: if you've got a song that you've turned into Pearl Snap, and he's done a demo for you, then send it to us, we'll say your name and the name of your song, and we'll play it a bit, and um, everybody wins, right? Yeah. We've also got a Pearl Snap hat Mm. that we are going to give away to the next person who goes to our Patreon page at... Patreon.com slash songcraft show. And the next person who signs up uh, at a $5 or higher a month tier will receive this cool Pearl Snap hat.
0: Yes, indeed. Very cool. Um, Which you can and- wear everywhere but to church. um we uh also just recently got a new patreon subscriber actually someone who was at the five dollar level who bumped up to the twenty dollar level which is lee wilson so uh we want to give a shout out to uh to lee wilson here on the show thank you just missed the hat lee just missed the hat man (laughs) sorry about it uh and i suspect that lee wilson is a hat guy but uh you know (laughs) Too bad (laughs) No, But but we do like to give shout outs here uh, on the show To the people who support us on Patreon To help make this show possible So again that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Songcraft show Go check that out, sign up, get yourself a hat If you've got some Pearl Snap stuff Send it to us, we'd love to play it If you don't, contact Justin at Pearl Snap Studios And get something that you can send to us For us to play Don't get shut out, get a shout out Wow pretty good right not bad not bad. part three singer recording artist instrumentalist composer and songwriter robbie folks most recent solo album upland stories was named among the year's best by npr and rolling stone and was nominated for a best folk album grammy additionally his alabama at night earned a grammy nomination for best american roots song Though his tastes are wide-ranging, folks is steeped in country, bluegrass, and folk traditions with an irreverent sensibility that can range from hilarious to heartbreaking. Robbie's first two albums, Country Love Songs and Southmouth, Mouth, helped define the alternative country movement of the 1990s, while subsequent releases found him exploring pop and rock territory. His recent work is more reflective and acoustic-oriented, though he occasionally diverges to pursue eclectic projects such as his 2018 duet album with Linda Gale Lewis, Wild Wild Wild. Robbie's songs have been covered by Sam Bush, Kelly Hogan, Andrew Bird, Molly O'Brien, Rosie Flores, John Cowan, Pen Monkey, Lone Justice, Old 97s, and others. Additionally, his writing on music and life has appeared in GQ, Blender, The Chicago Reader, DeCapo Press's best music writing anthologies, and other outlets. Besides country and bluegrass music, Robbie is fiercely fond of, in his own words, Charles Mingus, P.G. Woodhouse, Quantum Mechanics, his wife Donna, comedy in all forms, cooking, swimming laps, the past, Arthur Schopenhauer, universal horror movies, his grandson and even his sons, Coastal Towns in the Off Season, and Rye Whiskey, though in nothing like that order. Robbie, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you, sir. Now, as an artist, you are pretty associated with Chicago, but here we are in Los Angeles. Yes. And I understand you're actually out here for a little while. What's uh change of scenery? or
3: Well, what happened was that uh, my wife and I are empty nesters as of a few months ago, and mm-hmm. we talked about, uh, you know, we've been batting around the idea for a while of where would be a great place to to go for a change of scenery. Chicago has a lot of bad, uh, bad points <laughs> when it comes to weather, for instance. <laughs> right, and, for one. <laughs> uh, yeah. And when it, also when it comes to the arts, it's, you know, there, there's a lot of great art there and a lot of great musicians and actors and so forth, but there's not... An industry there, uh, mm-hmm. really. And so for us, it was a choice between New York, L.A., and Nashville. And we kind of batted around and ultimately went with L.A. My wife has an agency here. Uh, she's a voiceover actress. Oh, cool. And her agency here, she hasn't done a lot of work with it over the years. But she thought, well, maybe we can kind of like uh, plump that up and get that mm. going enough to... Afford the uh, extra, the added, uh, you know, cost of living that comes with being out here. Right. So, uh, so we're currently in an experiment with that to see nice. if we can afford being here, and we'd
0: we'd love to stay if we can we can work it out. Yeah, my coldest life memory is in Chicago. Uh, yeah, I, I went yes. to college
1: out there in in the suburbs. Of Northwestern
0: Chicago. or where? Uh,
3: Wheaton College. Wheaton. Yeah. Out where John Belushi's from, and yeah. uh, a couple other people. At Red
1: yeah. Grange as well red grain the galloping from... ghost oh my yeah. god it's <laughs> getting pretty nerdy already <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, oh you ain't seen nothing yet. yeah okay <laughs> um, it, you know i understand that your family moved around a lot when you were a kid um and i'm not i don't know if regional musical identity is a thing anymore as as much as it used to be but were there things that you picked up from place to place that you that found you know kind of became a part of who you were as an artist yeah, you know, bluegrass was really a, a common thread to
3: everywhere that I lived. The huh. places I lived were little towns in Pennsylvania, Virginia, and North Carolina. And from when I was a little kid, uh, like my dad loved bluegrass, and and we heard a lot of it around the house. And by bluegrass, I mean like Country gentlemen and Le- and Flatt and Scruggs and uh, uh, Doc Watson, and uh, along with some other things. But uh, I remember like in in uh, in. Uh, in Lancaster, uh, New York, uh, where I was living. There was a show that came on every Saturday morning and it was a, a show with a guy dressed up as a sheriff and it was called Here Comes the Sheriff or something and he'd have on Jim and Jesse and Del McCurry, different guests every week. Del yeah. lived in the area. Yeah. And, um, you know, so if there's somebody that lived in the area or somebody's just passing through, every Saturday morning he would watch the show along with the morning cartoons and see some bluegrass act. And then that carried through, uh, like I said, to those other other places that I lived to. So bluegrass was always a big piece of it. And uh, family music was always a big piece of it. Um, uh, I was not a guy that had uh, a lot of friends, or sometimes any friends, maybe. Uh, So not a big uh, social uh, network for me, but uh, my family was always like uh, just super – I was the only child till I was 11. And then for a few years into my teens as well, before I sort of, uh, you know, did a re- rebellious thing and started breaking away from the shared family mentality. Mm. Um, you know, we made music together and just – just and made harmony, vocal harmony together. Mm. Um, so – and then the third piece was just like records, I guess, like, like everybody else, just records that you get into of uh, – Of the times, and the
1: times were like the Beatles and Bob Dylan and stuff like that. Mm. It's it's interesting. You talk about like that Saturday morning show, Mm -hmm. you know, which you kind of maybe happened upon on your way to some cartoons. That sort of doesn't seem like a thing anymore. This idea of accidentally discovering something and having that. There were
3: three stations back then, and now there are three thousand, and everybody's on their own. Yeah, and you can just sort of
1: program whatever it is you want to watch. You pull this up on on Netflix. I I don't think my child is going to accidentally happen upon much of anything <laughs> right. um, nowadays. That you was know? the
3: great thing about the old days. I mean, you'd watch the Ed Sullivan show, not that I had this experience, but you'd watch it to see the Beatles or something you wanted to see, yeah. and you'd had to sit through a fucking dancing rat and an opera <laughs> singer and all this stuff and, and a comedy actor, and who knows? You know, Maybe you'd see one thing that you just weren't totally... In for, yeah. but right. that would stick in your mind, and you become a new fan of some other person or some other domain. That doesn't really happen so much anymore. Even you know, reading—I don't want to go down this too far—but reading the paper, your eye falls on something else on the other page.
1: Yeah. That doesn't happen on the internet so much, right? Yeah, That's yeah. yeah. I mean, and I think about you know the the kid who turned on the Ed Sullivan Show only for the dancing rat. And was like, "Wow, who's this band? It's the Beatles." <laughs> yeah, right, I don't amazing. like them, but they're they're memorable. Yeah, or Dancing Red.
0: Yeah. Ah. <laughs>
1: um, when did you first get into writing music of your own?
3: Well, I was probably nine or ten, and I wrote wow. some really crappy uh, songs. I-, I can say whatever I want on this uh, podcast yeah. as far yeah. as you yeah know,
1: language vulgarity. Or, yeah. I-, I I won't.
3: Take too much of them.
1: What in the them. world did you write at the age of nine that you're checking in on right now? <laughs> I'm thinking backwards. Right? I just said the word fuck a little <laughs> while ago.
3: That's fine. Yeah. i just wondering what... I was just saying, like so when I was nine. stupid song
1: <laughs> Like, when I was nine, I wrote... Wait a minute, can I say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wrote...
3: Uh, this will interest you. I just uh, I remembered it uh, because you guys are country uh, uh, scholars. Uh, that uh, when I was... Uh, 13, maybe 14, like this is the first song that I wrote that I actually sort of did regularly at my shows because I started performing on stage when I was uh, 15. And it was a parody of uh, a Red Sovine trucker song, and it was about a little uh, handicapped boy that gets on the CB uh, radio and communicates with a trucker, and they uh, had this... Uh, this sort of one-sided conversation the boy right. just talks about how miserable his life has been and then uh, the boy dies at the end of the conversation yeah, yeah. I thought this was the funniest thing in the world that I wrote this <laughs> satire and it was a really black and bleak <laughs> song and I inflicted it on these little club audiences for probably five years or something before I gave it up but so the little boy on the CB radio was my first sort of official song that right. I sort of brought into my act <laughs> and there were a lot of other sort of parody like I've always been drawn to these parody songs yeah as a young reader of mad magazine and and things like that and right. um and a comedy big comedy fan uh, uh so so that was part of it and then the obverse of that is these uh confessional uh you know lovelorn wear your heart on your sleeves songs and um so i was coming from that and a way that's embarrassing was probably embarrassing even then you know I, w- I don't think i was ever totally confident about it. well i don't know anyway <laughs> those were in my act as well
0: um well i understand that you moved up to new york city uh from north carolina to go to columbia university mm-hmm. in the um, early 1980s kind of got into the folk scene there and that's not a scene i actually know very much about what was kind mm-hmm. of w- what was kind of going on in the city at that time and in what ways did that kind of further your understanding of songwriting kind of shape who you were becoming as a as a creative person mm-hmm. um so the scene at the time we're talking about 1980 and so
3: i'm in college and kind of making sort of regular trips to kind of uh try to be a, a little parasite on this scene which revolved around <laughs> gertie's folk city and a speakeasy and uh and the other end slash bitter end and a few other rooms like that and so uh kind of a I don't know, not, not, not the brightest moment in the history of these clubs, I would Oof. say, but, but not to say that there weren't a lot of good people. So the people were, um, Suzanne Vega was a big uh, oh, yeah. person on the scene at the time, uh, Eileen Weiss, uh, Lucy Kaplansky, a guy called uh, Peter Murphy, mm-hmm. uh, a guy called Jack Hardy, uh, Dave Van Ronk. Uh, led a lot of the sessions and uh, you know I could I could go on with another 10 names but but you get the idea mm-hmm. so it had a little of a of a relationship to the era which I romanticized most fervently which was you know, uh, early and mid-60s and, mm. and Bob Dylan and all that stuff. Sure. The folk scare in, in Greenwich Village. <laughs> um, it had a little bit of a relation to that. Uh, and uh, and the Roaches had happened, had come out of that scene a year earlier. I was a big fan of those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, 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 I don't think I ever really... I mean, I played at those places, but I was never... Uh, I was never a a fixture, never, and and it goes back to not having, to being kind of a loner, not having a big social network, not being a joiner, and maybe something about me repels people uh, (laughs) as well. Uh, I remember being in Folk City, one of the the first times I was there at the bar, and, and just having a drink, and the bartender comes up to me. This is more psychologically revealing than I necessarily want to be. But the bartender came up to me and said, what's wrong? I said, nothing's wrong. I realized in that moment that I was like sitting in the the, the center, the ground zero of where I wanted to be and having a drink and looking miserable. And this was kind of my uh, my what I projected out into yeah. the world at the time and maybe right. a reason that it didn't work out for me.
1: Wow. You know, you talk about that New York scene, and then we, we know you as a Chicago musician, mm-hmm. and it would seem like, well... You would stay in New York and flourish, and and but somehow you ended up in Chicago. What what took you there?
3: So I got a girl pregnant, and she uh, her parents lived in Chicago, and we decided to uh, not a girl, but my girlfriend, a longtime girlfriend, and uh, we decided that uh, you know for economic and other reasons that uh, that that was going to be our base. No. We we're going to uh, move out there, and so in 1983, uh, that's what I did, and that's where I've been till you know the other month in in wow. Chicago.
1: And you've survived. Every winter, from 1983 up to this point, that that may be the most in, insane part of this whole discussion. He survived all those winters.
3: Yeah, it's it's that's physically challenging. I mean, to survive as an artist in Chicago for a long time is like a sort of a achievement. Uh, you know, artist whether you're an, I mean whether you're an actor or a but as a country musician. There are definite challenges to uh, sure. making your mm-hmm. living uh, anywhere and that Chicago, being in Chicago adds to it. Like, why? what's he doing there? Why is he yeah. in Nashville where all mm-hmm. the action is? But the simple answer for me was that I didn't really have the freedom to relocate to yeah. Nashville. My family was all, over the years, just became uh, multiplied and was all centered in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So... Ultimately, when I started working in Nashville, I just kind of commuted and, and mm-hmm. tried to, uh, you know, do it that way to take the Greyhound or to drive and to spend a week or two there at a time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, well, as someone who, who grew up in Nashville yeah. um, and grew up around the music industry, I, I pretty much hated country music. Um, Son of Woody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. As we know. Indeed. Yes. Um, so I, I, I have no interest in country music. Um And then when I was in college um, in the mid-90s, three things happened. Mm. Uh, One, I got really into Bruce Springsteen because I started writing uh, songs of my own. And my dad said, if you... If you like Bruce Springsteen, you need to buy Steve Earle's Guitar Town record. The other thing that happened at that time is is Wilco and and Sunvolt came out with their first two records, mm-hmm. which really caught my attention. And while they weren't mainstream country records, there was a lot of country elements there. Mm-hmm. Um, the third thing that happened was that someone gave me a copy of your first record, Country Love Songs, mm-hmm. which was sonically more traditional country than any of that other stuff. But was kind of coming from a bit of a different perspective that was sharp and clever and funny and interesting and sometimes really sad. And it it caught my ear in a way that I would later learn traditional country had had been doing for a long time, but it was new to me. Um, and so it those factors kind of changed my perceptions a little bit and ultimately set me down a path where I'm today like completely obsessed with Buck Owens and Merle Haggard and have spent way too much money on Bear Family box sets. And you are partially to blame for that since you helped turn me on to this music. So for that, I I thank you. Um, You're welcome. (laughs) That's very nice. Um, Uh, Let me just say that that's a continuing
3: phenomenon in life, what you were just saying, because there's this, uh, there's this uh, idea maybe somewhat reality based that country is, over here and kind of off the radar as far as coolness mm-hmm. and uh, you know for 20 25 year old people it's just not it's a it's an embarrassment and a stain on
2: the, <laughs> on the world
3: of art and culture right uh, but then there are these windows into it that they do find, and the windows are different over the years. In 1968, it might be Johnny Cash at San Quentin, and in 1974, it might be Graham Parsons, and in 1980, something else that I can. Oh, well, the outlaw movement with yeah, uh,
0: yeah, William, William Whelan,
3: yeah. and then uh, and the period you're talking about, like Jeff Tweedy and people like that. But I think the the basic idea is always the same, and it's and it's uh, like for me, that uh, a big gateway was El- when Elvis Costello did a country record. Oh yeah. And Almost uh, it wasn't that I was that thought country music was terrible. I was already kind of a Merle Haggard fan and and, and a, some other people fan. But but that record, uh, I thought, well, who is this? Graham Parsons or what? This is Loretta Lynn or this is Charlie Rich? And like, I didn't know probably two thirds of the songs on that yeah. record when yeah. it came out. So we all need, I guess, those gateways when we're dumb, <laughs> young and <laughs> right. dumb and full of cum, and when we're like right. you know twenty years old and have all these <laughs> <Right>. prejudicial <laughs>
0: attitudes. Right. Right. Yeah. Um. I think even looking back at that at that record now i look at a song like you know rock bottom population one which i think is you know just such a great um country song it it sounds more like it's from 1956 than mm-hmm. from 1996 mm-hmm. and and it's got um like a sad lyric but this upbeat like feel good honky tonk mm-hmm. sound
2: welcome to rock bottom population over by the mountain, where a fell from and, if for we'll and get you some. Downhand, rock bottom population
0: one but even the structure of the song it's got a verse it's got a chorus it's got a verse there's no you know big bridge you know it's very the structure of it is even kind of of another time and i'm curious especially with that being your first album was there a a a self-conscious attempt that like i'm gonna try to write this retro thing or was this just kind of like what naturally was coming out of you at that time uh i would say it was extremely
3: self-conscious i would say that uh you know so we're talking about Like, uh, when I started working on that record, 1994 or so. So at this time in 1994, I was, like, really freshly in love with country music, just passionately mad about country music as as it was between, I don't know, just 1935 and 1975 or so. I don't know, something like that. And... uh, and just, you know, if you knew me at the time or if I taught you music, I was working at the Old Town School of Folk Music, you would see this evangelism on behalf of country music. <laughs> I right. was just a real apostle of it. Right. Um, and at the same time, I'd had been, i spent, I don't know, t- more than 10 years trying to get a record label to notice me and I could ah, if I could just get somebody that owns a record label to put out my stuff, then I'd, mm-hmm. then I'd be on the road to somewhere that I wanna be. So uh, this local, a punk label kind of sprang up, and they they put out one of my songs on an anthology of theirs, um, and they were called Bloodshot, and it was three people in Chicago, and uh, well, I thought here's my chance. You know, we're getting along, we like each other, they like my uh, aesthetic, and I like doing the country music from the sort of outsider point of view, so I wrote up a proposal. It was like the nerdiest, stupidest thing, but I wrote up this proposal in which I said, country music as it consists of, in its it's commercial format nowadays, is dominated by fatuous feel-goodism and a kind of a quasi uh, (laughs) ill-motivated feministic uh, (laughs) da-da-da-da-da-da, and uh, what I want to, it was like a manifesto. Right. And Which, again, was self-conscious because I felt that they would respond to it because that was the kind of People punk attitude. Were. It's a punk label. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they did. They bit, and they gave me three thousand dollars to make a record, and, and that's the record that I made. <laughs> wow, that's
0: awesome. <laughs> um, one of my favorites uh, on that record is "The Buck Starts Here," which um, Tom Brumley played oh, yeah. steel on. Which, I mean, having a an original buckaroo from the classic lineup come play on your first record, I mean, it had to be pretty pretty unbelievable. amazing unbelievable yeah unbelievable the bus starts here
3: This is one of my uh, long-fostered resentments that, that that brings up because uh, when I got the chance to uh, to include Tom on the record, I remember that he wanted $400 for the session, which was like a I don't know a three or four-hour session, and it okay. was all live to to tape. Right. And, uh that's an eighth of your budget that's like 2600 2, left yeah. exactly right. and i and i went back to the the label and i said man i got a chance to have tom Brumley. they go who's that i said well he's in the buckaroos and i said it costs 400 dollars there's absolutely not nobody's going to know who this is and it's way too much money
2: right and
3: i i said well fuck you i'm going to i'm going to save 400 dollars and i'm just going to spend it myself right. and in this way the record ended up being uh more like a 6000 dollar record than a 3000 dollar record <laughs> right. with these little encroachments Right, right
1: right right. don't Uh,
0: make me write another manifesto (laughs) (laughs) yeah i can do that all day long it's like remodeling your kitchen you know you have your budget but then you got to do this other thing it's exactly (laughs) like that regrettably it
3: is like that right um but the the experience uh that resentment aside the experience of working with tom was just uh was was beautiful uh he came in um a little bit ill you know, he had like had a cold and, and stuff was coming out of his nose. Mm-hmm. And he, evidently from his attitude, he wasn't into playing live to tape. He didn't mm-hmm. like that yeah. idea. Yeah. And he didn't know who I was. And he was just kind of like, it was a job to him. But then the first song happens, and then the second song happens. And the attitude shifts a little bit, and he's enjoying And then uh, a few, I don't know, maybe it was the following year, but we had another session with him. And he came in just like full of love and warmth. Like he'd heard mm. the other songs, he'd had a, the opportunity to kind of think about what happened. Yeah, and he was so in my corner from then on, and wow. mm. and and willing to also to sit and talk about the old days. And and so after the sessions, we would sit for the better part of an hour in the front room of this studio in Springfield. And uh, I would say, you know, tell me something about Don Rich. You know, what was he like on a personal level? And he said, well, I'll tell you one thing about Don was that we'd go out and he'd order a steak. And first he'd turn it white with salt, and then he'd turn it black with pepper. And then he'd eat the steak. (laughs)
2: Little
3: things like that. Right. I mean, you can't pay to get that kind of information. Another thing Tom told me, we were talking about some of the old songs about... uh, about the keys that Buck chose uh, C-sharp, for instance, for uh, uh, Together Again, a mm-hmm. uh, famous uh, solo of Tom Bromley's, where he right. kind of uh, really made this innovative lower harmony on, yeah. the, on the pedal steel. And one of the things he said in discussing that, he said, uh, boy, some of those records I never even took out of the cellophane. Said, so why not? He said, I, I was just so it was so fast, and I wasn't happy with my playing. And I knew if I listened to it, it would just like eat at me a little bit. I did wow. not want to hear the
1: results of wow. that. Wow! So great information yeah, like that. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, uh, when Scott was bringing up rock bottom population one, he said, you know, it's upbeat mm-hmm. but lyrically sad at the same time. Right. Where barely human is super bleak and sounds <laughs> super bleak.
2: The thirst in my body. Is all I can feel So slowly the clock turns Till night falls at last If I'm barely human I can still lift the glass and I was I was
1: thinking we were, you were talking before about your early sets of having the, you know super funny songs and then the ones that are kind of more you know bleeding heart type of stuff and I thought about you know comedians who we often talk about comedians they come from a dark place mm-hmm. with you know, with a lot of their comedy but often don't have the opportunity in the set to get dark mm-hmm. as a singer songwriter you have an opportunity to strike that balance is that something that sort of comes naturally where you you know I've been funny for a while, and now I'm gonna now I'm gonna hit you hard. Well, uh,
3: I think you're inviting me into sort of a what's a can be a platitudinous area for me. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, but I would say uh, I would say that uh, to me, like music is life, as platitudinous as that might sound. Mm. And so when I'm giving a slice of uh, of my life and a ninety minute performance for somebody to to present one or two emotions doesn't do it for me. I want to present uh, the joy in life and the tragedy in life and various tones in between and uh, and the funniness and the not funniness. Uh, and I also want to do that on a record. I, uh, for me, the LP... Uh, template was established by uh, when I was young by uh, records like uh, well anything from Buck Owens to the Beatles where the emotional tones would swing wildly and the uh, okay. and a record would be a variety package it would have like a an instrumental on it and it would have a, a ballad and a funny and it would have a then the the drummer would sing one. Well, and I was then, about to say uh, the Beatles were perfect for yeah. that. you get a Ringo moment, <laughs> yeah. levity and right. a total variety. So. Um, and, and two, the uh, older shows, you know, um, if you saw the Lubin Brothers in the 50s, you'd get, or Roger Miller in the 60s, you'd get something uproariously funny followed by something, a dead baby or, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> such emotional variety yeah. to those shows. And so those were my uh, influences and uh, and it combined with my feeling about what a show should be and what I wanted my, my expressiveness to express. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It's interesting just even hearing you talking about your, your approach to writing seems to be very intertwined with, you know, your presentation, with your show, with, with the act. Like, you, you clearly are the best mouthpiece for your own songs. I mean, you think about how you're going to present these to your own audience in a way. Like you say, it's a reflection of your own life um, where there are plenty of songwriters who just kind of write stuff for whoever <laughs> to sing, which is, which I guess kind of decontextualizes their material a little bit. So where these, you have these little one-off spurts versus getting a sense of who somebody is and what their, their art is about when you think about their presentation of it, you know? Mm. Well, I guess I agree about halfway
3: uh, with what you're saying, but uh, like a song like Rock Bottom Population One. I wrote with somebody else, and mm-hmm. we had a lot of commercial music going through our minds as we were writing it, and I don't think we really conceived of it as a very personal song. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the same token, when I during that same time, I guess, when I was writing for a company called Songwriters Inc. in uh, in Nashville, you probably know some of those people, Johnny Slate and those people. Uh, anyway, writing for, for a salary mm-hmm. for a publisher, I was really trying to focus away from... You know, here's a song that only I can interpret. Really, right. the opposite of that. Right. And some of the stuff I came up with, uh, like "Tears Only Run One Way," happened to hit me in a way that I I felt uh, I felt well, I love this song and uh, right. and I want to sing it. Yeah. And a lot of others didn't. Yeah. Um, but I did come away from that experience with the idea that uh, songs that it's it's hard to write a song that you're not connected to personally. You know, mm-hmm. and somehow no matter how hard and analytically and competently you're working at it for me anyway something seems to bleed through like i don't mm-hmm. believe in this and this is an exercise and mm-hmm. something of that bleeds into yeah. it and makes it not a good song by either comparison the artistic uh, the artistic standard or the commercial standard either yeah. one
0: yeah well you you famously wrote a, a song mm-hmm. about your experiences as a music row nashville oh, staff mom. writer so,
2: but this town-
0: I love the line, shook a lot of hands, ate a lot of lunch, wrote a lot of dumbass songs, and as two guys who have spent plenty of time co-writing on Music Row, I think we would love to hear about some of those dumbass songs, (laughs) because I I, I love to hear about the... the less glamorous part of songwriting. All right.
3: There's, if hearts could tell time, they'd know when it was over. Oh, my God. Uh, stones I've thrown, ripples in the water from the stones I've thrown. And uh, the killer wore red. That was another one. And just a bunch of stupid songs like that. And, uh, I mean, to be fair, my boss liked some of them. And, you know, the demos that were made sounded convincing enough to me. And, uh yeah. Uh, that the pitches went nowhere in particular, maybe wasn't a total slam against the songs. But, uh, you know, anyway, I wrote a lot of stupid shit, for sure. Right. Right. Ate a lot of lunch is amazing, <laughs> too, <laughs> by the way. I mean, it's like... <laughs> right,
1: I, in, just in terms of the way those sessions go hey,
0: we got half a verse you guys want to go get lunch <laughs> totally
1: what totally
0: no <laughs> yeah, let's go get lunch at that place where i can see that other person that i wrote with is gonna say man we ought to write again and they don't mean it <laughs> that's so true
1: lunch so you can look over my head for an hour
3: <laughs> so true um can I tell my Woody Bomar story while we're here at this point of the Heck yeah uh, absolutely I wandered in your dad's office one day I didn't wander but Jody Williams I don't know if you know Jody yeah, uh, he's always had terrible security at that place Yes <laughs> this was the biggest evidence of that <laughs> believe me he, so his company was called Little Big Town if I remember yeah, right that's and right. Uh, Jody Jody was working to send me to various publishers to try to uh, to try to make inroads and so I ended up in your dad's office and uh, And I remember he said, uh, like, he was nice, but he was not, uh, you know, he he was not bending over backwards to make me (laughs) feel great about my gifts, necessarily.
0: (laughs) Does that surprise you, Paul, to hear that my dad wasn't bending over backwards? I love you, Woody. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> does he listen to these shows oh yeah
1: everyone. okay well <laughs> hello and god bless you if you're listening but uh
3: i walked in with this song which was another mediocre song of the ilk that i just described and and actually one that i'd written with dallas so i shouldn't call it mediocre This the uh, dallas wayne who co-wrote that other song that you mentioned with me right rock bottom and uh so i played it and the song was called everybody's Talk, and, and it was kind of a, a um What was it? A mashup of Goodyear for the Roses and Don't Cheat in Our Hometown. And there's this relationship going on where she's cheating on him constantly, but there's also silence in the home. And the hook line is, everybody's talking but you. And uh, at the time, I heard this hook and the song through Dallas. I thought, man, I really like this idea and and the setup. And I played the whole song for your dad in his office on the guitar.
2: Uh, There's a fire burning in our town and it's spreading at the speed of sound. Bad news travels fast, I guess that's true. And then the back half of the verse. And then the hook. Everybody's talking. Everybody's talking but you. And that's the end of it. And your dad immediately goes,
3: no, 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 no. It should be everybody but you. And I looked at him. And I said, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'll stick by my guns on this one. Uh, I, yeah, it's okay, but I don't want to keep it. But you at the end. So your dad was so obviously correct in this. <laughs> in this, and and I might have known it at the time, but I had this mentality. Ah, I got to protect my art. I got to. I don't want some yokel changing my shit here. You know. Right, right, right. But you like put this emphasis on but. You know, stupid. <laughs> And then uh, just as an epilogue to that, uh, I remember saying uh, to your dad, I said, man, I'm 30 years old, and I just, I really want to make it on the scene here. It's like I've been on the scene in Chicago for years, and now that I've got these inroads through Jody, it's just really, um, I really want to be a good worker for somebody, and, and I'm super motivated, and, and your dad goes, what would you say? You're 30? He goes, like, that <laughs> That landed in the opposite way that I meant it to land when I said that. And I imagine your dad was my present age, which, you know, 55, 56 years right. old at the time, maybe. Right. Right. Great songwriting advice right off the top of his yeah. head. Right. And uh, yeah. fuck you,
1: 30-year-old. Get out of my office. Well, it, it sounds like, first of all, you and I drank from the same well of decision-making around that same time in our lives, because I would have been the same thing. Like, no, you didn't tell me how to yeah change my song what you kidding me I'm change my song uh and and I would have also been wrong right. and and it's like uh again Woody you're listening he's just always been a truth teller like yeah. it's that's like that is the the thing that resonates in him the most and it's like it's one of those things that man it's so objectively refreshing when you think about Nashville right but there are moments when you're in that chair across from him and you're like no, don't tell me the truth. Just tell everybody <laughs> else tell the truth. Yeah. Other people, well, not a lot of other people, but David
3: Conrad was kind of at the same ilk. I don't know if you guys have run into David yeah. over the years yeah. from Elmo Irving. He would sit across the desk and be pretty intimidating and say, and 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 he'd say, no, nah, you don't need to change anything, but here's my opinion. You don't need the alternate chorus." He would make these very granular. Right. Criticisms which were you know, even if you didn't agree with them, you really had to consider them. He knew what he was talking yeah, about. Yeah. I think your
0: dad was probably the same cut from the same cloth. <laughs> he, he, yeah, he'll tell you. He'll that. tell you. Yeah. He'll tell you what he thinks. That means which a lot. is uh, which is a certain level of integrity that, that I just assumed was how Nashville worked because I grew up around that. Like, yeah, people just shoot straight with you and they tell you the truth and then later figured out, oh no, that's not
1: that's not the, the case. norm. No.
0: That's uh that's unusual. <laughs> Um. So your 1998 album "Let's Kill Saturday Night" has some of that, you know, honky tonk stuff like uh, "Can't Win for Losing You." That's reminiscent of of your earlier records, but overall, it's it's more produced, it's bigger, it's more kind of rock influenced than your first couple albums. I've
2: got the Mustang.
0: The track was later covered by the country group Penmonkey and became your only charting Billboard single as a songwriter um, from an album that was on Geffen Records, kind mm-hmm. of your your major label moment. Um, was this a moment where you were consciously attempting to write for a broader market and go for more of that commercial success, or was it a moment when the commercial world kind of just tuned into what you were doing uh, no, I, I think I always had foremost
3: in my brain don 't be a hack do what 's artistically uh, solid and uh, and uh, expresses my highest aspirations and uh, so that uh, strategy hasn 't always paid off for me hmm. or maybe even been a good strategy but that's uh at the, uh, the that record was uh motivated. By a desire to uh, be more successful in music, you know, mm-hmm. in other words, to join a corporate label and to be more successful, gain a bigger audience. And uh, it was also really a chance for me to break out of this box that I felt I was in at the time, which I made two records for this punk label that were both on the same theme of, uh, you know, old fashioned country, but with some cuss words and with some modern lyrical points of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I th- thought, enough of that, you know, I've done it twice now yeah and I just want to present a bigger picture of of music which uh uh which which might have uh grungy electric guitars and which after that might have a sweet pedal steel and which after that might have a long ballad narrative and and it'll just be a really open Mm -hmm. picture of uh of music and songwriting so that's what I was going for with that record and it might have been a little bit that message I don't think really got through Hmm. uh Hmm. when that record came out. But that's yeah. what I was after. Part of the reason it didn't get through was because uh the sequencing of the record, which wasn't uh, which which I, I had different opinions on with uh with the uh with the label, but uh it's front loaded in such a way like the first four songs are wow wow wow. Like uh, uh catfight for the first uh <laughs> four songs. Right. And uh then that then that more general picture emerges uh, with prettier sounds for the back two thirds of the record. But yeah. uh you know, the record uh Mostly was what I meant to wanted to do, and was as well as I could do it, with a yeah. tiny exception of the sequencing.
1: Huh. Yeah. people don't realize how important things like that are. Sequencing right. of a record, the order of the songs, the way they play into each other, even the amount of time between the songs right. when you're mastering, and you're like, ah, two point five seconds, or you know, the the fact that we go in that deeply on minutia, but it matters.
3: Right, you know that you want it to be. Right, according yeah. to your standards. And so it's important to you. And I, I agree totally. Every record that I've done, I, I, I have to give that attention yeah. to. Uh, pacing and sequencing. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: you know, a- as we move into the new millennium, you released the very best of Robbie Fultz in <laughs> 2000, which was not a compilation, but it was an album of demos and unreleased recordings. And I've heard you say the song "That Bangle Girl" is one of your favorites. Um, wow, well, it was it's 20 it's years a special ago. Special song to you, or it meant something to you.
3: Well, you know what I love about songs like that is when you write a song about somebody, about your admiration for somebody, yeah. they almost always end up hearing the song one way or the other. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I don't know if that's true, like on a presidential level or on a world leader level, like right. I wrote a song about that. But definitely with Susanna, uh, that, you know, she heard it in pretty pretty quick order, you know, from different people. And I got a good reaction Sort of back through the grapevine on that. Yeah, uh, that's a solid celebrity crush, by the way. That <laughs> is a real. That's the right. real deal. I don't I mean,
1: think anybody can. That was Prince's celebrity crush. Yeah, I don't think so, anybody can true. look askance at a Susanna yeah. Hoffs thing. No. Know. What would you look askance
3: at, though, Paul? Uh, well, I, <laughs> I, a crush
1: on who? <laughs> I'm not the type of guy that that would do that, but I will tell you that my Katie Couric crush has gotten me into some hot water. <laughs> 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 That's a pretty good answer. Yeah, that that (laughs) doesn't always get the reaction at parties that I hope it would, where I haven't actually found the guy that's like, dude, I get it. Um, Amazing. Maybe now that we've thrown it out, (laughs) maybe one of our listeners. Maybe we'll get back to Katie. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. (laughs) Uh,
0: I remember coming across an article uh, in the early 2000s that you wrote uh, for the Journal of Country Music about Mm -hmm. Gene Shepard called The Woman in the Asbestos Suit. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that was when I first kind of became aware that your talents uh, extended beyond just songwriting, that you write all kinds of stuff, um, you know, great blog posts and articles and oftentimes with kind of a historical viewpoint. Mm. And uh, being a guy that makes unnecessary connections that aren't there, uh, Gene Shepard's biggest hit, of course, was a Dear John Letter, which was written by a guy named Hillbilly Barton. And you recorded a Hillbilly Barton song on your 13 Hillbilly Giants album did? that was uh Don on my mind which was a win Stewart uh, when Stewart yes. record yes being a person myself who's very into music history and I see you writing you know articles about Gene Shepard I see you making a whole covers album of 13 hillbilly Giants you know of, of some kind of obscure stuff um is there a, a side to to you I mean obviously you are a songwriter and a, a creator but is there a, a side to you that thinks of yourself as a preservationist or, or a historian as being part of what you do?
3: Definitely. You know, when I got the Geffen contract, one of the main things that I wanted to do and really focused on uh, was, it, like, was a six-record deal. And one of the six records, or maybe I added it as a seventh, I can't remember, was, a, was a, I said, I wanted to produce a record that I would write, and it would be uh, various singers such as Porter Wagner and uh, and I don't know who else, but there were like there was like a list, in Jimmy Dickens I had a list in my mind. And uh, it would be uh, them in a sort of modern production singing my anyway. I would it, a labor of love to kind of um, present in a new and maybe a little more modern context some mm-hmm. of these old singers whose uh, vocal uh, apparatus was still really strong. Uh, and uh, and whom I admired so greatly, but wanted yeah. to kind of get yeah. to work with and mold slightly or yeah. something. Yeah. So yeah. it ended up being called the Old Folks album. We ended up looking at studios with with George Massenberg and kind of like laying out the the groundwork for it, but it it never did happen. But that's the that's the most concrete example I could think mm-hmm. of to come back at you with. But it's to say yes, uh, I've always loved the the historicity of music and. Always just uh, happy to go crawling around the ruins of the past and uh, to find great things yeah. that are that are hidden hmm. away. It's a great treasure
1: hunt that never ends. Yeah. Uh, In 2005, you came back to original country material with the Georgia Hard album, and there's there's a word that Scott has taught me, countrypolitan, mm. that it had kind of a countrypolitan feel, and I, I like that. Um, it's got some fantastic songs like "Where There's a Road." Why? seem to have you know kind of a uh an aesthetic to each one of them sonically um when you approach making a record is that sort of what rules the day like i want to make a record that feels like this and so i'm going to write songs that fit this sonic palette or is it more that you you're making the record and you feel it happening and then you pull material that you've already got that you know is going to fit the vibe or you know Yeah, so the answer is both.
3: You know, I've done it both ways. Uh, I did a record called South Mouth. It was just like some of the best songs that I thought I had on hand that would cohere together. And with the record you just mentioned, I did have the idea in advance that uh, I love this 70s country music. And it was, it's, uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but at the time I thought this is some less appreciated, like the hipsters appreciate like Webb Pierce and Buck Owens and things like that, but maybe not so much. Uh, Don Williams or Ronnie Milsap or people like that that were a generation later and yeah. that the sound was a little bit more mellow and suburbanized or something like that. So I thought I want to I want to tackle that. That was sort of like a specific conceptual yeah. kind of mm-hmm. thought about that record.
1: We, we we sort of like to categorize country music by what people were wearing in the era. <laughs> like, there's a satin baseball jacket country era where you yeah. got like the early Alabamas. Mm-hmm. yeah, and then you got Kenny Rogers with the white blazer country. Wow. Nudie suit country. Yeah, there's certainly nudie yeah. suit country. Then are these just, different
3: eras? Kenny Rogers and uh, in Alabama? Well, they're not as much different
1: eras. You're kind of overlapping there. You are cer- you're certainly got, you know. They're audiences. almost genres. Yeah. I almost. see. Yeah. yeah. And then you got guys that just wear whatever they happen to be wearing that day. <laughs> onto the <stage>. Conway Twitty. <laughs> <Certainly>. <laughs> yeah. Track suit again.
0: I, I mean. We, we, <laughs> A little bit unzipped for the ladies, though. We <laughs> yes. saw Merle
1: Haggard at Buck's Crystal Palace, right? And Merle had a fishing hat on with like yeah. lures, yeah. hanging right. from it. I mean, like he might have just been fishing. Yeah, I don't think that was like a choice. Like for yeah. the show tonight, where's my fishing hat? <laughs> Love that. It's amazing, right? That's that's only
3: country almost, isn't it? Right. Totally. Like they I mean, right. with those freaking golf pro ball caps and stuff right. i've seen
1: the hoo a couple of times in the last decade and i feel like pete townsend now just wears whatever he has on that's like, beautiful just whatever it took a while for him to get there but now he's yeah, there totally right. he's like these pants are comfortable right. <laughs> this
0: shirt almost covers my stomach <laughs> is he fat by the way no but just the the, the windmill the windmill, of, exposes, you know, when the windmill yeah, when the windmill uh, goes. the formerly skinny guy punch <laughs> right. yeah right. fat skinny guy <laughs> Um, so I remember in the late nineties going to, to see you play in Nashville at a club that I, I can't remember the name of at that show. I remember you played an ABBA song and I think it was dancing queen. maybe. Mm-hmm, sure. Um, and I remember being like, that's weird. But then by the end of the song, which is a song I obviously knew, but not a song I necessarily thought about. And I remember by the time you got done playing that song, I'm like, that's a good song. But it sort of had been presented to me in a way, production-wise, that I hadn't really ever thought about it as a song. I just thought about it as a record. Mm. Um, And you're doing that, and I know you did an entire album of Michael Jackson covers. And there are several examples of you taking songs that are like ubiquitous, huge, popular pop songs and kind of presenting them in a new way. And you spoke about, with country music, kind of presenting in a new way. But as a songwriter, what is what is that about for you? Taking these songs that are very well known and kind of casting them in a in a different light. Well, yeah, I've done it
3: uh, several times. I, I recorded a Beyonce song called uh, Irreplaceable and I recorded a Cher song called Believe and uh, I recorded that Michael Jackson thing. I did Dancing Queen. So this has come up repeatedly with me and it came up and at some point I thought, I've done enough of this. It's start, starting to seem like a... A shtick but mm. i think a couple things behind it. one is that I, I have so little awareness of popular music that uh, well i should say when i when i share a song believe crossed my path i thought oh, this is this is delightful like this is something really popular that i also understand and relate to it's a good melody mm. and i like the song that happened with the beyonce song too which my son played for me i thought wow i like something that's happening that's now Mm. and popular and uh yeah and uh that makes me feel like i'm not uh a stranger in my own (laughs) land in a way (laughs) right i can relate to this stuff and a second feature of it is that uh i love arranging stuff and so the chance to sort of disassemble something and come back at it fresh like how can i put this in my voice what happens if a banjo comes in what happens if we do this and this and this uh that for me is uh It's a pleasure that's akin to composition, but it's Mm -mm. better because when Mm. you're composing something and you see your own words, you're like, I don't know, is this bullshit or is this just a side of me that I don't want to put out there? Mm -hmm. But with somebody else's song that you're already convinced is good, that ego stuff doesn't (laughs) come to play at all. And the final piece of it is that audiences relate to it. So I get strong feedback when I do that and that encourages me to do more of it. Yeah.
0: I think what's interesting about that is I think artists like yourself who have a very dedicated fan base, but what I would also call like a selective fan base in terms of their taste. I mean, there's a certain pride in following an independent artist that isn't somebody that is Mm -hmm. at a Beyonce level, you know, where it's, it kind of belongs to you. We were talking about this earlier, like, you know, this artist says something about me. Yeah, Yeah. it belongs to me. And and I think there is something actually about those of us who are kind of music nerds where there's a tendency to want to dismiss something just because it's popular, exactly, you know, of like, Oh no, that can't be good because the masses like it. And I think there's a great value in somebody like yourself, who I see is having a lot of credibility with your, your fans to take a song that's unexpected like that. It's a huge pop song. You go, no, listen to this. This is a good song. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a well-constructed, interesting song. And let me, let me show it to you in a bit of a different way. I think there's, huge value to that
1: it's like when ryan adams did the entire taylor Taylor swift Swift. or when richard
3: thompson covered britney spears or fountains of wayne covered maybe also britney spears i mean it's definitely an idea that's out there and and i agree that it's good to press back against this uh this uh, supercilious idea that whatever is popular is is shit. 1989
1: sorry
0: i messed it up not 85 yeah Yeah. well as a big uh, Tay Tay devotee yeah, sorry. I didn't miss it <laughs> <laughs> Tay Tay um, Well there's a song called That's Where I'm From on your 2013 album Gone Away Backward
2: That's where I'm from Where it's just yes, ma'am oh, sir can tell I'm Country Just you look closer It's deep In my
0: It seems to me that as your music has kind of come back to more of those acoustic folk oriented kind of roots, there's almost more of a, of a tender edge to it in a way. And, and maybe some of, you know, generally speaking, the, the lyrics don't tend to be as biting and as caustic as, as maybe they were, um, you know, earlier on. I don't know if I'm right about that, but it's kind of my perception. What, what do you make of that? Mm.
3: Uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm not working that the comedy pedal as hard as I used to, or the, the whatever you call it, song parody or satirical song, uh, that category. Uh, I mean, again, I feel like I've, I've kind of done enough of it, and I've also noticed that if it's it's a it's a barrier for some people uh, to get over. If you do a record that has 13 songs on it, and two of them are uh, either jokey or you know lighthearted or satirical, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you're it's it's like attending one communist party meeting you know in the in the 40s uh well he's a communist right it's like you know oh he's a funny songwriter you know <laughs> yeah. what about right. the other 11 songs on the fucking record you <laughs> right. know right <laughs> so it it definitely taints it for for some people or, yeah. or presents a barrier and um and since I've done it a lot I feel happy to say well let's let's back off from that a little bit and mm-hmm. let's just and I'm I'm you know I'm, as a crowd 60 I actually do legitimately feel less joyful every single moment of my life and mm. the, the 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 positive leap out of bed and go and go uh and go uh I don't know. That that that, that particular kind of energetic positivity that, that fueled some of those earlier songs is more muted now, mm. is maybe a neutral way that I can put it.
0: Is there a sense at this stage in your life where perhaps you don't need the the cynicism or even the humor as much as maybe you once did to kind of address things are you able to 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 handle it in a different way is there any correlation there you think
3: well it's definitely true insofar as uh you know when you're starting out that you have this need to make a splash and just make your voice heard above Mm -hmm. the hubbub Mm
2: -hmm. and
3: so that does create an incentive to uh you know, a couple of the songs I've done, I, I kind of regret doing now, and at, at least I, I definitely don't want to be outperforming them anymore. I just want to say oh, that's done with. I've, I've yeah. done "Fuck This Town" a hundred times in the '90s, and now I'm done with it. And I, I don't, I don't want to even really be associated with some, <laughs> some, of, some <laughs> of the specific thoughts in it anymore. It's just like not something that's, uh, that's relevant to me anymore. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, the, the, the incentives are different when you're first starting out, and at this point. Uh, uh, I'm out there. I've got a trail of baggage and a catalog, and and so it's a different. It's a different. I don't know. Maybe a more modest set of incentives or something now, but uh, I don't know what my incentives are anymore. You know, it's it's to do something that I haven't done before exactly. It's still that, uh, but it's also to reflect, um, to be conscious of who I am. You know, if I'm in a performance uh, that. Uh, I see people in performance sometimes that are my age that seem to be trying to project a 30 year old version of themselves. And I don't want to do that. Uh, It feels awkward to me Hmm. to be an audience member watching that. And I don't want to
1: do that. Hmm. This this is all really interesting, like narrative arc. If we were making the Robbie Fulkes movie, you know, they (laughs) would give you the Bohemian Rhapsody treatment. And then I
0: think... Where's the
3: capitalization for this project coming from
0: anyway? (laughs) Uh, It'll be a crowd funded, right? I think you're going to have to go in pocket like you did for the steel guitar player. (laughs) uh, Maybe the Tom Brumley Brumley estate would like to uh, invest. Tom Brumley proudly presents.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But a climactic scene in this film would be the Grammys uh, and your nomination in 2016 for uh, the album Upland Stories Mm. and then the song Alabama at Night. (laughs)
2: I knelt down to let it in me. Sure, it would come if I gave it time. And I've fallen amongst a hundred words, but words don't do it right. Alabama at night, Alabama at
1: night. Love to get some some background on that project and that song, and then also what that kind of recognition felt like. Now oh, on. it felt great, you know.
3: It felt great to have a little bit of recognition, and I didn't win either, either nomination. But just to be there at the awards and to, to get the nomination to get the nomination felt great, you know. Uh, uh, and, and 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 I'm just like anybody else, you know. I have neighbors, and the neighbors say, "What do you do?" And I say, "I'm yeah. a country singer." Oh really, you know what, have I heard your music? No, you haven't heard right. my yeah. music. So, you know, that's an embarrassing end to a conversation, right? But but if you can work Grammy nominations into that conversation, yeah, yeah I've uh, you know, I've played on the well, I do the Grand Ole Opry from time to time. I've gotten these two nominations. Not that I would ever say that to a stranger, but uh, you get my point. I, like for, I would
2: say that to a stranger
3: for somebody. <laughs> yeah.
2: Sometimes I do say it to. It. There was
3: a car rental guy at a, at Enterprise the other day that that uh, looked me up online. And he saw Grammy, and he just related to me completely differently, which was unfortunate. I didn't want to be in that position and talk about (laughs) it. But you got an upgrade. I got an upgrade <laughs> I, I actually kept the car. I never returned it. <laughs> but you know people can understand if they're not on the inside of the of the art. Now they can understand there's some uh, uh legitimacy or recognition yeah. coming from the outside mm-hmm. and so for a guy like me that doesn't sell records exactly and doesn't have some big audience, it's really important that kind of validation. Yeah. Without it, there's almost nothing, you know. So to have, the, and the, for me particularly, the valid to keep complimenting myself, the validation of uh, people that you admire that are other musicians and songwriters, that's more important to me than anything. Uh, the, that that uh, that a guy like Sam Bush, I admired from the time I was probably 11 a whole lot. The mandolin player um, and singer and the leader of New Grass Revival was one of my all-time heroes. And uh, to have to know that he likes what I do uh, is such a a goad to me in continuing continuing on, like more than the Grammys or more than anything else. To have people like that in my corner is uh, is uh, just my main and almost only form of like, uh, yeah, you're doing all right. Keep going, keep
0: going. Well, your most recent album is Wild Wild Wild, a collaboration with Linda Gail Lewis. Um, and you wrote most of the songs including Round Too Long, which sounds like she wrote it herself. I'm not- Talk a bit about something we haven't touched on as a writer is that's a, kind of a unique situation where there's a project where you're writing multiple songs for someone else's voice, right? Um, which is not the most common assignment I would think in the world as, as a writer. What was that kind of process or, or challenge like for you? I loved it. Yeah. And really, I loved
3: in Nashville all those years ago trying to write songs for a Reba McIntyre or, uh, or a Ty Herndon or a Joe Diffie or whoever. As a as a as a, a task or work for hire, I love doing that stuff. Yes. So uh, for Linda, it was especially uh, uh, fun because I, I'd always loved her singing, mm. you know, with her brother, with her brother's act, and, uh, and and admired her as a person and loved her story. You know, it's like you're the youngest sibling in the Jerry Lee Lewis family. You're growing up in dire poverty. Your mm-hmm. mom owns two dresses. And you live in a sharecropper shack. Your dad's a sharecropper, and uh, and all of a sudden, your brother becomes a worldwide celebrity, and you're circ- And now you're rich, and your brother's like uh, uh, making sure to uplift the whole family, buy the whole family Cadillacs and a house and mm-hmm. indoor plumbing. Suddenly, your whole situation yeah. yeah really changes. Like right there, that's an interesting story.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Only becomes more interesting when you learn that. Uh, well, okay, she's a woman and she plays the piano in the style of her brother who kind of taught her how to play and she's been oh she's been married eight times including you know <laughs> uh, two or three times the same guy like this is right. a really interesting story <laughs> right right uh and uh and she and probably like came out of a period of personal craziness and re- and reformed her mind a little bit and and ever since has been this strong person who uh, works under sometimes trying circumstances but just work 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 like Mm -hmm. all year long working shows Uh, really interesting person and story and so yeah
0: maybe that's the movie we should be making that is totally
2: the
3: movie let's go with that
0: (laughs) totally
2: well
0: there's a bunch of uh, guitars hanging on the wall there behind you I don't know if you'd be up for it but if you want to sing a song for us that'd be really cool sure
2: Swingin' doors and Whiskey River the first words I learned to say Willie Merle and all those outlaws was all that daddy'd ever play These beer joints where I'm working I started working at sixteen. Look a little ragged Must be those 30 years between My first single hit the big time Ever yeah, a while there I was hot I can't recall the early 90s These last ten I'd rather not There are mornings when I wonder What I can show for all my time Yeah, but I sure can sing with feeling Whiskey River take my mind This honky-tonking way of living I've been living way too long Excuse me if i it for heaven I just lived a country song Now at the Super 8 in Reno Couples screaming through the walls I'm laying in my jeans and dreaming About a girl in Omaha Well, that's been twenty years and counting I can't go back there anyhow I've hitched my wagon to a heartache And Lord, I'm sleeping with it now This honky tonkin' way of living will make the weak out of us strong. Don't tell your troubles to me, mister, until you've lived a country song. Say, I'm so long, some I could cry. This honky-talking way of living, I've been living way too long. Excuse me if I'm late for heaven. Just live the country song. And if I never get to heaven, it's because I live the country song.
0: Well, Robbie, thank you so much for, for coming by today and spending some time with us. This is oh, a lot of fun. Oh, it was an honor. The people
3: oh, that pleasure. have been on your podcast, are, uh, that's all I can say. It's an honor.
0: Thank yeah. you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'd
1: love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast
0: app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word, and don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's patreo dot com slash songcraftshow.
1: Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.